Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Chase Beisel. He's a group leader at the Helmholtz Institute for RNA-Based Infection Research. This is all in Würzburg. Germany. So Chase, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. If you would, tell me about your research. Yeah, so I focus in the broad area of CRISPR biology and technologies. So many people have heard about CRISPR as this revolutionary genome tool for cutting DNA, editing it as you see fit. But what is less appreciated is that this revolutionary technology came from these immune systems found in bacteria and archaea, which are there to fend off foreign invaders. And so as people learned about how these systems function in nature, we figured out that they could be readily used for things like genome editing and a bunch of other applications. And so my research group has focused on understanding CRISPR as this natural immune system in bacteria, but also how we can leverage those insights to develop new technologies. Yeah, what, what percentage of researchers are saying, thanks, bacteria, bye, and they're just you know, looking at it in terms of human use versus people you know, going back and studying the bacteria themselves? In the end, you have this huge spread. I think you have the people who recognize the technological potential and appreciate that. But at the end of the day, they just want to know how the system evolved in bacteria and what it's doing. And of course, other people on the other end of the spectrum who just want to use this as a tool, they appreciate that nature took those initial steps to make something that could be useful, but then are happy to leave nature in its tracks. Um, and so in many regards, I, like another good chunk of the field, fall in between that we appreciate its natural origins, but we're also trying to push this immune system beyond um, how it naturally evolved. So within CRISPR, 
what model are you working with? Are you working with bacteria themselves or are you working in mouse models or human models? Like what's your focus? Yeah. So I've tended to stick with bacterial systems, I think in part because that's where CRISPR was discovered and where it's it's being characterized. But at the same time, there's also a ton of applications of CRISPR technologies in bacteria that I think are less appreciated. So this includes using CRISPR for genome editing, turning genes on and off. Um, Another application where my group was one of a few that had first established this was using CRISPR as a programmable antimicrobial agent. So you can actually use CRISPR to selectively kill bacteria based on their sequence and sparing others and has a lot of potential for fighting multi-drug resistant pathogens, as well as being able to precisely manipulate microbiomes, such as what's found in our gut. So that's why we primarily operate in bacteria. Um, The last quick point is that we also rely heavily on these cell-free systems where you can just drop DNA in encoding your constructs. These systems then start cranking out RNA and protein, and then you can create these biochemical assays to measure the activity of what you're expressing. And so this has been a really, really rapid way of doing experiments with CRISPR that allows us to go much faster than those relying on traditional experimental techniques. So that kind of captures our approach in a nutshell. How are you using it to uh, selectively kill certain bacteria? Are you using a bacterial vector to do it or how does it look? Yeah, yeah. Let me unpack that for you. So if you can get CRISPR into the cell, which is a non-trivial step in itself, I'll return to that in a second. The idea is that you've introduced DNA into the cell where once in, we'll start expressing your CRISPR machinery. And based on the guide RNA sequences that you've designed, you're instructing this CRISPR nuclease to look for that sequence within the cell. And in the context of bacteria, if CRISPR finds that sequence, such as somewhere in the genome, it cuts the genome and bacteria have a really hard time repairing that damage. And so it ends up proving lethal. And so by picking sequences present in bacteria we're trying to kill, such as those with a specific type of antibiotic resistance that you wouldn't find in other bacteria in your gut, the end result is the bad bacteria are killed off, whereas the good bacteria basically shrug it off as if nothing happened. So that's what happens when CRISPR gets in. Getting it in is a huge challenge, and there's been two common ways to do that. One is using bacterial viruses called bacteriophages, where you can manipulate their DNA. So they go from trying to infect a host cell in order to replicate to just delivering the DNA cargo that encodes CRISPR. And so that's been a really effective way of delivering um, CRISPR antimicrobials to different types of bacteria. But there's other ways where bacteria can pass DNA from one to the next through this process called conjugation. And so that's also being explored as a way of delivering these CRISPR antimicrobials. Oh, so you can use a viral vector to uh, have CRISPR enter into a bacteria and then it cuts and causes damage and the bacteria can't fix it and it kills them. Exactly. And the key thing is that these viral vectors are are really specific to bacteria. And so they don't do anything against, say, our own cells. What happens uh, bacteria to bacteria in the wild? How is CRISPR used by them? Like specifically, is it only for defense to fix their own errors or is it often? Yeah. So the primary approach, as we understand it, is it's really using CRISPR to fend off these foreign invaders, um, which could be one of these bacteriophages or bacterial viruses. It could be an invading plasmid or these other mobile genetic elements. But what's been fascinating, though, is as people have studied these, they keep on finding all of these exceptions. And so there's been a lot of great work recently where they've shown that CRISPR is doing things entirely unrelated to defense. Um, A great example is how 
CRISPR was co-opted by a type of pathogen called Francisella. It's pretty nasty. And it's using CRISPR to specifically turn off genes that our immune systems are looking for. And by turning those off, the bacterium is able to evade detection and be a more potent pathogen. And so that's merely one of many different examples where CRISPR seems to be doing something else besides protecting the bacteria against invaders. So again, the mechanisms of it being used for defense versus offense, can you contrast like one example of each, like what's been observed? Yeah. So for defense, the example is that um, CRISPR encodes these uh, sequences um, within these CRISPR arrays that trains the system to look for a matching sequence. And so by having those encoded that are against, let's say, one of these particular phages, if that phage goes into the cell its genetic material will be automatically targeted by CRISPR. And by cleaving that phage, it clears that infection. And so the cell survives. So that's principally how this system functions um, for defense. For offense, let's see, I think I could mention a few good examples there. Um, I already told you how CRISPR has been co-opted for this other purpose where it's turning off genes that our immune systems are looking for. And so that could be an offensive way CRISPR is used to allow this pathogen to invade our bodies and survive. Another example that comes to mind, though, um, is entirely separate from what I've described up to this point. And so it's these things called CRISPR transposons. And so they represent this evolutionary quirk where transposons, which are these um, selfish genetic elements that like bouncing around from one genome to the next, manage to fuse with the CRISPR genes. And so now the CRISPR machinery is used to look for specific DNA sequences And then that transposon gets integrated at that location. And that's what allows it to jump it around in a sequence-specific way. And so in this case, uh, the CRISPR part is being used offensively to drive this transposon from one location to the next, underlying how it is able to spread in nature. So hopefully those are a few uh, reasonable examples for you. So you can engineer CRISPR so that it, it either piggybacks on or interacts with transposons and what causes them to migrate to specific spots that you want them to go to and insert? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So in this particular case, and this is work done by other labs, although we're, we're playing catch up, I would say, is that these are naturally occurring entities that just happen to combine CRISPR with transposons. So not invented in the lab, but like all other examples of CRISPR, they became really easy to harness for our own purposes. And so now they're being used to directly insert potentially very large pieces of DNA in very specific locations where current work has been done in bacteria, but there's a really strong interest in being able to move this into human cells as yet another tool in the toolbox for approaching how we use CRISPR-based approaches to address various diseases and so on. 
how many different uh you know i've heard of everyone i think has heard of crispr cas9 but i've also heard of crispr cas12 and are there different crispers and different casts like is there a whole family of these these compounds with different uses yeah the the list is extensive and seems to keep growing um i think part of that is as a defense system you you find it everywhere but it seems to have evolved through different means and so you see all of these variations um i think another big part of it is that um you know crispr evolved as a defense system against phages but then phages find ways to circumvent that system and so crispr has to evolve to keep up and so i think that helps to explain why you see this incredible diversity of these systems and from a technological standpoint it's been incredibly helpful because as people go in and mine for these new nucleases they can find unique ones and all it takes is that one new nuclease that is either smaller or has a unique function or operates at a different temperature and suddenly that opens up entirely new and improved technologies so it's all to say it's it's incredibly diverse keeps on growing and just seems to be this endless playground for those interested in how we can harness these things for technologies uh what bacteria was was this discovered in and you know how many bacteria could be candidates of various crispr cases Yeah, so I think current estimates have CRISPR in roughly 40% of bacterial genomes and as more sequencing is being done that number keeps adjusting. Um but the original discovery, um a, a really nice example of basic research, it was in E. coli, which is one of the best studied organisms, but it was back in the 80s when the a group was looking at genes that ended up being in the vicinity. Uh and this was back in the day when some of the original sequencing was being done and they ended up looking a little bit outside of the set of genes that again have nothing to do with CRISPR that they were really interested in and that they happened to notice this weird DNA pattern in in that sequence that they ended up mentioning in the paper as something unique they had no idea what it meant but that ended up being the first footnote for the identification of CRISPR okay i just didn't know if there's certain bacteria that tend to use it in ways that uh, are interesting to researchers or not you know does e coli uh, use it or uh, porphyromonas use it more etc Yeah, so I think that the general understanding is that again you find these across bacteria, but they tend to be uh, much more prevalent in some type of bacteria than other. And even when you look at the particular type of CRISPR-Cas system, you see some again dominating much more so than others. I think people are still trying to figure out why that's the case and why some would be selected versus others, whether they really provide an advantage or it's harder for phages to evolve around or those are just the original examples historically and so that's what spread so those still those represent some of the the still big unanswered questions in the field well, which bacteria are you working with uh, what you know what are their names and uh, species etc Yeah, so we we've taken a very broad approach, I would say. Um we do a lot of work in E. coli, but not to study the CRISPR-Cas system you happen to find in E. coli. It's just a really simple test bed in order to study these different systems. And so in many regards, we're looking at systems that um are present in bacteria that can't even be cultured, but those bacteria have been sequenced and bioinformatics have allowed people to at least say, yes, there's this is a CRISPR-Cas system that we identified and there's something unique about it compared to everything else. And so in the end we have a very um CRISPR-centric a uh, view of going about research rather than starting from the angle of the bacterium themselves. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, well, I think there's so many different bacteria to choose from. 
you know, if you, if you know you're likely to find some kind of defense mechanism like this in other bacteria and you keep expanding and, you know, looking at more, I think eventually you'll find a lot more uh, different compounds, you know? Oh, definitely. And um, I guess, but one quick point on that is that just the general topic of defense systems and bacteria is just this exploding field right now. And one area where we're trying to participate in where for the longest time, people knew about three defense systems where CRISPR was the most recent one, but all of a sudden, all of these other ones are being discovered and characterized. And so the list has quickly grown from three up to probably about 30 and it seems to keep on going. And so that only suggests that bacteria have a much more diverse arsenal of these defenses to fight off foreign invaders. But again, it gives us this incredible playground to create new technologies based on what came out of CRISPR and restriction enzymes, which is another defense system that was a huge boon for biotechnology. So yeah, if you look at the um, the 30 or so defense mechanisms, like what are some of the ones that jump out to you that are interesting? Maybe they haven't been explored yet for potential use, but high potential. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty incredible list. Just off the top of my head, I think one of the ones we're really interested in um, or just have stood out to us are these things called retrons, which were something that were known for probably a few decades now, but it's an example where they had been observed, but no one really knew what their function was. And so it's papers only coming out really in the past year that have shown that these retrons, I'll tell you how they work in a second, seem to be providing some sort of defense. Um, The exact mechanism still needs to be worked out, but there's at least a few pieces that have been filled in. And what's interesting about these is that these systems produce an RNA But then they also have extra enzymes that are called reverse transcriptases that convert that RNA back into a single strand of DNA. And people knew about that step, but not really what it was doing. And so it was only recently shown that that step seems to play some role in being able to thwart infections by certain types of phages. How exactly that works, hopefully we'll find out soon. Richard, how about this? Could we go back to um, one other question you had earlier? Because there's a particular line of discussion that would be really fun to go down. Sure. Yeah. What is it? Okay. So you're asking about different bacteria that my group works with and some of the work we've done there. And in general, again, we, we take a very broad approach and look more at the systems rather than the bacteria. But one really fun exception we have is this bacterium called Campylobacter jejuni. So it's a stomach pathogen, it's associated with foodborne illnesses, and it's also the focus of one of my really wonderful collaborators. Her name is Cynthia Sharma here in Germany, and she focuses on understanding the role that RNA regulators play in this pathogen. And so we've been working together to understand the CRISPR-Cas system you can find in that bacterium and what functions it provides, um, all with an eye towards not only understanding its central role, but also what sort of technologies that can come out of it. So through our work together, one of the first insights we had was figuring out which RNAs this Cas9, which is one of the, uh, which is part of this system in Campylobacter, what it's able to bind. And going in, I think we had very, very simple assumptions about that based on what had been shown in the field, which boiled down to it just binding these guide RNAs that the system uses for defense. And um, what was really surprising through these first experiments was finding that this Cas9 protein was binding a ton of other RNAs coming from the cell and RNAs that didn't seem to have anything to do with immune function. And so the 
following up on what those RNAs were and why they might be interacting with Cas9, um, one of the first insights we had that we published just a few years ago was that Cas9 in itself seemed to be actively targeting these RNAs based on Cas9's guide RNA sequence. And so it was actually finding these base pairing interactions with these RNAs. And it was really surprising because up to that point, Cas9 was only thought to go after DNA targets, again, as part of its immune function for cutting DNA. And we were one of the, the first groups to show that no, Cas9 naturally can also go after RNA. So that was one of the first insights we had. But then through follow-up work that we, we just published recently, we found that there was another set of RNAs that were being bound by Cas9. And to make a long story short, what we figured out was that these other RNAs were actually being converted into guide RNAs for Cas9 to use. So rather than the guide RNAs coming from the immune system itself, Cas9 seemed to be grabbing ones found elsewhere in the cell from, RN from mRNAs or other RNAs that had absolutely nothing to do with immune defense. And so it was through that that we figured out that these guide RNAs could come from non-traditional sources, you could say. So that's what we had observed taking place in this bacterial pathogen. And there was a big question of like, what are these RNAs doing? Do they have some sort of regulatory role? Is it important for the how Campylobacter functions as a pathogen? And there we still have really no idea, but hope to figure that out soon. The, the key thing though, is it gave us an opportunity to develop an entirely new technology. And so the general idea was that if Cas9 was able to grab these RNAs and make them guide RNAs, then Cas9 would then start looking for the matching DNA sequences and try to cleave those. And what we were able to do is figure out how Cas9 was looking for these RNAs and make that programmable. And so the idea is that we could now tell Cas9 which RNAs to look for in order to turn those in, into guide RNAs. Sounds very similar to like a viral payload. It's amazing what it can do inside of a cell, inside of a bacteria. Natively, yeah. you know, without, without even the programming, it's just amazing it, it can recruit these RNAs to turn them into guide RNAs for itself. Oh, definitely. And I think there's still quirky aspects about what Cas9 can do. And again, every time there's a new insight, there's a new technology that comes out of it. I can tell you more about the technology, but I want to see if that's the route you want to go at this point. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking it's amazing that uh, not only does, you know, does CRISPR-Cas, well, first of all, it's able to enter into cells. Second of all, it's able to co-opt some of the cell's machinery, again, just like a virus, and accomplish its own ends. And that it's directed. It's not just, uh, you know, it randomly binds to this or that. It, it seems to uh, not only have an intended target, but able to recruit resources from the, you know, the bacteria or whatever it enters into to accomplish its goal, which is crazy. That's what makes it so fun to study. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. So what, what yeah, what technology have you, have you guys contemplated that you could talk about? Yeah. So, so again, the, the general idea was that if this RNA was present, Cas9 could be trained to convert it into a guide RNA and now start cleaving matching DNAs. And so as a result, Cas9 could end up being this bridge that says, okay, if this RNA is present, then this DNA will be cleaved. And so that DNA getting cleaved is an indirect readout to say that RNA was present. And so that in itself has opened up a number of applications. Um, the one that we, we published on most recently was using this for diagnostics. And so the idea is that we move this out of Campylobacter, put it into a test tube, and still by the same concept, we're now having Cas9 look for specific RNAs 
present in a large pool of RNAs that let's say comes from a patient sample. And so if that RNA is present, a set of DNAs that we can provide should get cleaved. And so the nice thing is that we can watch a, all, a lot of these DNAs at one time and figure out, okay, this one got cleaved, but this one didn't, but this one got cleaved, and in turn say, ah, so here were the RNAs that were present in that sample to begin with. And so the opportunity that generally opens up is the ability to detect not just one, but a large set of biomarkers present in a patient sample, and then have this really, really simple readout that can tell us what was present and what was absent. And so this is something that we're now moving from the research lab and really trying to work towards commercialization on. Very good. So what overall in the fields, in terms of CRISPR-Cas being used in people, um, it doesn't seem like you stray much into that area, but what do you know of that's happening in that area? Yeah. And I think one key thing to recognize is that CRISPR for genome editing is by and far the most visible application of CRISPR. That's what most people hear about and think about. And that's still something that's really moving forward fast. But there's all of these other technologies that can also benefit people. So I just told you about a way of detecting different RNAs in a sample that could be used to benefit people, such as screening for different SARS-CoV-2 variants is one example. I've been a lot of other ones, but I guess turning back to your question of how it's being best used, uh, there's still the big push right now is how CRISPR can be used for human gene therapy as a way of treating a wide range of diseases. And you know, in that regard, it's been really fun following all of the clinical trials taking place. Um, there have been some really nice successes so far, even if I think there's still, I would say, not hesitancy, but people just being a bit more reserved to see how these trials play out and what this means for people. But there's still incredible excitement about what they could do for people with a broad range of genetic diseases. So, I mean, how directed, how targeted is CRISPR-Cas systems action? I mean, could this, uh, you know, how much off-target effects can they have? I mean, how much better do we need to get at being able to target to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't affect someone adversely? Oh, no, definitely. Um, I think these are still ongoing debates. I think part of it is figuring out how much is this happening, particularly in a setting where you're actually treating a patient uh, versus something you're doing in the test tube. But also, um, how can you go about reducing those sort of off-target effects? And there have been incredible advances on the engineering side to really ensure that CRISPR only goes after its target and ignores anything else. Still a chance it could happen, but those chances have been greatly reduced. But also the technologies needed just to go in and detect these sort of mutations that could arise. And uh, if you're looking across a very large number of cells, you know, if it's going to be happening in one out of 10 billion cells, um, is that important to detect? And can we push the technology to get to that point? So it's all to say, I think all these aspects are in lockstep of trying to understand how important off-targeting it is and how we can best assess this. And I think at most... While it's important to look at this, it's also important to recognize that our cells are mutating every moment, uh, just due to sunlight and then replicating. And so it's figuring out how much we can really go above that baseline or end up with potential off targets that could cause harmful effects, but still keeping in mind that our cells are doing this on some regular basis. Well, very good. Uh, Chase, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, so they can visit uh, my group's website, which is through the Hemholtz Institute for RNA-Based Infection Research in Würzburg, uh, Germany. So just do a search for HIRI, H-I-R-I, 
and my last name, Beisel, B-E-I-S-E-L, is probably the most direct way to get to that site. Very good. Chase, thank you for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.